So this is, uh, what we're going to look at tonight is, uh, by philosophers, is called the teleological argument, right? Um, the Greek word for uh, perfect or complete uh, or to reach an end is telos. So what we see is that the universe appears to be designed for a particular purpose. Now, you can hear certain scientists who would uh, try to argue against that, but I think we're going to see today that there is abundant evidence that would uh, clearly back that idea up, all right? So you can see in the slide behind me here, um, I, I like this, this quote uh, from uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament, it's his praise. But then you see this quote here. The, the universe is unlikely, deeply, shockingly unlikely. The idea that this universe, with its extreme degree of complexity and order, has come into existence as the result of sheer chance is sheer nonsense. And so I want you to... Uh, I've used uh, an example in the past of uh, discovering a, a smartphone in the Sahara Desert. But I want you to imagine that you're walking along and uh, you see a guitar leaning up against a tree. You walk over to that guitar and you pick it up. What would you assume if you were walking in a deserted area and you saw a guitar leaning up against a tree. What would you assume? There's got to be a musician around here somewhere. <laughs> Redeemed. Somebody's been there, right? Mm. Is it a musician? Well, you would assume that, but you know, I've seen people carry guitars around and just do it to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, in fact, I think there's a wedding picture that I remember a pre-wedding picture of Leo and Cynthia, and Leo has a guitar in his lap. And I said, oh, Leo, do you play guitar? And he's like, no, they just did it for the picture. But now let's assume that you know enough about guitars to pick it up and strum it, and you discover it's in tune. Yeah. So there is purpose that is evidenced in that, right? You wouldn't assume that the guitar arrived there as a product of sheer chance, right? Somehow, you know, the, it's leaning up against a tree, the guitar's made of wood, well, maybe it just grew there. Uh, I don't think that that's gonna be a plausible explanation. Well, we exist in an exquisitely fine-tuned universe. Um, let's narrow it down to earth. So three weeks ago on Sunday morning, we looked at Genesis 1, and the case that I made was um, on the Wednesday after that Sunday was that this is phenomenal language, phenomenological language, a language of appearance, that the purpose to, between, behind Genesis 1 is to describe the reality that flows out of Genesis 1-1, which is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so then he shows you that. 
The purpose is not to show you the exact order, although it does follow a, an order of planetary development to a degree, but it is, it is a, uh, a, uh, an explanation that is helpful to anyone of any age, right? So uh, we would call this uh, a Revelation Day approach to Genesis chapter one. In fact, that means that each day of creation is a day wherein God revealed that he created something. And the evidence uh, that is uh, points to that is the very first thing that is created, which is light. You can't see anything without light. Light uh, is the first thing that is created. And from that point on, you see each thing revealed as God created it. Um, well, let's focus on the earth. In order for the factors of life to exist and in order for intelligent life to come about, conditions in our universe must be favorable. So it's not just that we have happened to find ourselves as a planet in this particularly favorable place in the universe. The entire universe has to line up in order for us to have the kind of life, intelligent life, life that is capable of uh, discovering and, and observing the universe. That starts all the way at the very, very beginning. So last week we talked about the cosmological argument, the argument from cause, that anything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. But I'm sure you well know that explosions don't create anything. All right, you blow stuff up, you don't end up creating, you're destroying. And yet this is an explosion of matter and energy that resulted in what we see now resulted ultimately in you. So there's obviously intelligence behind that. There's obviously a powerful force of creation behind that. Um, William Lane Craig says, astronomers have been stunned by the discovery of how complex and delicate a balance of initial conditions must be present in the Big Bang itself if the universe is to permit the existence of intelligent life. Well, you saw presented in the piece of video there, uh, the familiar example of gravity. We rely on gravity every day as we're walking along. Uh, as a matter of fact, if gravity uh, were slightly stronger than it is, uh, you and I would not be able to exist as we do. If we're slightly weaker, we wouldn't be able to exist. As a matter of fact, when the astronauts went to the moon, the moon has one-sixth the gravity of Earth. And in spite of wearing very, very heavy spacesuits, when they came back, they were very weak because they had been exposed to, uh, they had not been exposed to Earth's gravity. Um, so if gravity were too strong, matter would clump too tightly together, stars would be too hot and they would burn too quickly. If gravity were too weak, matter would not clump enough. Stars would be too cool and hence no heavy elements could be produced and planets would never form. Gravity exerts itself consistently throughout the universe in a perfect balance for stars and planets to form. And this is called the gravitational constant. Now, you saw in Strobel's video uh, from Case for a Creator that he said to imagine a ruler stretched across the known universe. This is to help us understand the delicate balance of the gravitational constant, right? 
So if that ruler were stretched across the known universe and it was marched, marked in one inch increments, imagine that the gravitational constant is located at one point and only one point on that ruler. How far do you think the constant would move, would have to move, before life as we know it would not exist? If it were to move a mere one inch, if you had a ruler stretched across the known universe and each of those one inch increments represents the total possible uh, number of the gravitational constant. If it were moved even one inch, life as we know it could not exist anywhere in the universe. Now, that's just one fine-tuning parameter. There are four very powerful uh, fine-tuning parameters that are important. The strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, uh, or nuclear force constant, all right? Uh, and Lyde, you should have, there's a there's a slide for this up there. The strong nuclear force constant, the weak nuclear force constant. Then, of course, we talked about the gravitational force constant and the, elect the electromagnetic force constant. Well, if it were just those four, that would seem rather significant. But there are more. Number five, number six, number seven, number eight, number nine. Everything from the ratio of electromagnetic force constant to gravitational force, that is how those are related to one another, the ratio of proton to electron mass, all the way down to the mass density of the universe, that is the total amount of mass in the universe. That's 10. That's incredible, but wait, there are more. There's 11 through 30. Next slide, Lige. There we go. But Sorry, wait. I'm having trouble hearing you. Okay, you can shut up, Siri. <laughs> I don't understand why my watch totally talks back to me all the time. All right, there are even more. Lige, go to that slide. This is number 31 through 59. Oh, but wait a minute. There are even more, finally. This is numbers 60 through 93. All of these fine-tuning parameters have to be perfectly in line in order for life to come about. And so the idea that this happened as a result of sheer chance is pretty much nonsense. Um, you see on the slide here, the tolerance of some of these parameters is so infinitesimally narrow that even one of them constitutes good evidence for the existence of a designer but there are 93 and counting. Now, it depends on who you read as to how many they will say there are. There are some that will say there are as few as 30, and they will kind of vacillate with some of these others. But nonetheless, um, that is a powerful evidence for the existence of God. Um, let's look at one of these parameters, the total number of electrons. Electrons are really small, right? It's a subatomic particle, right? So you guys have had, you know, physics. So you have an atom. What are the three components, the three major components of an atom? Protons, neutrons, electrons. Proton, neutron, electron. Which is the smallest? Electrons. The electron is the smallest. 
and orbits the nucleus of the atom, right? Did you know that there have to be a precise number of electrons in the universe in order for life to exist? So there's a slide there, Lige, called a red dime. You've already got it, good. Um, the number of electrons must be equivalent to the number of protons. That means they must have uh, a balance to an accuracy of one part in 10 to the 37th. What does 10 to the 37th mean? 10 to the 37 zeros. That's a 10 with 37 zeros. I can't even say that number. <laughs> or stars and planets would never have formed. How sensitive is that balance? Cover North America in dimes. Stack them to the moon. That's 235, 236,000 miles. Now pile dimes on another 1 billion continents the size of North America. All with dimes, completely covering the continent, stacked 236,000 miles in the air. A billion continents the size of North America, all stacked with dimes to the height of the moon. Paint one dime red. The chances of you picking that the first time on the correct continent in the correct stack, that's one in 10 to the 37th. Yeah, there are 93 parameters like that. And you're gonna try to convince a thinking person that that is the result of sheer chance. Maybe you have, as I have, wondered why the universe is so big. So the slide where this um, uh, is overlaid is actually a picture of, um, I don't know if you've got that one. It's, it says, ever wonder why the universe is so big? And it's a picture of galaxies, basically. So I may have these in different order. You may have to. I got it. Yeah. Do you see, maybe I didn't have the, the galaxies in the background of that one. No, that's the next one. There we go. Go ahead and go to the next. Uh, that's not it. That's all right. Leave it at that slide. Um, the total mass of the universe is, is critical. So there's this idea, well, the universe is so big, we're so insignificant in the universe, but if the universe wasn't the size that, is it, that it is, and now we're not talking about the amount of space, we're talking about the amount of mass, the number of stars, the number of planets, uh, the, number of, the amount of matter, period. If that were not absolutely balanced and correct, that fine tuning is so extreme that it must be one in 10 to the 60th. Ah, somebody did this number for me. That's one part in a quadrillion, 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 quadrillion. And you heard Pastor Craig a couple of Sundays ago go over what those numbers were, right? Well, by comparison, the universe is a mere 10 to the 18th seconds old. If one were to remove or add a single dime's worth of mass to this vast cosmos, the balance of the observable universe would have been thrown off and physical life would not be possible. So at that first fractional moment when the Big Bang occurred, the total amount of mass in the universe was already present. If one thin dime, we don't even carry change anymore, so maybe you've forgotten how light a dime is and how thin a dime is. But if that amount of matter had been missing in that first moment of the universe's expansion, then the universe as you and I know it 
would not exist. So total amount of mass. How about so much empty space? You look up into the sky, you look up into space, and there's just vast swaths of empty space. And that, again, has made people feel as though they're lonely. They are insignificant. But just as the total amount of mass in the universe is necessary in order for complex life to exist on this planet, so the total amount of space in the universe is... These are constants. This is not something that's coming out of the Bible. This is not something a theologian thought up or a philosopher thought up. This is hard science. If the total amount of mass in the universe was not the way it is, then you wouldn't be sitting here right now. If the total amount of space in the universe that exists right now was not as vast as it is, you wouldn't be sitting here right now. There would be no life in the universe. Given that the amount of matter in the universe cannot be more or less, we can turn to the rate of cosmic expansion as one answer to the question of how we currently have the amount of space between bodies in the universe. The cosmic expansion rate cannot differ by one part in 10 to the 60th. You'll recognize that number as the same immense number we encounter when discussing the universe's mass. If the rate had been slower, there would have been less space between bodies, a lot less space. In fact, the universe would have collapsed back on itself before stars form, right? So I like this. You're, if we're talking to the universe about the universe, and if we consider uh, the scientific explanation looking at the Big Bang, looking at cosmic background radiation and other factors, that the universe is likely 13.73 billion years old, not 6,000 years old. It is at least, that is the universe, is at least 10 billion orders of magnitude, a factor of 10 to the 10 billionth times too small or too young to permit life to be assembled by natural processes. That is crazy. That means that you can start considering, you know, well, what about the what about the multiverse and so forth? But you still don't have enough time. You don't have enough space. You don't have enough mass to assemble life as the result of natural processes. Now, a lot of these numbers, a lot of these figures, I've gotten from Hugh Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross. He's a uh, is a uh, an astronomer and a cosmologist and an apologist. If you go to his website, reasons.org, reasons.org, you can get a lot of this stuff. Let's look at some of these, uh, these quotes. George Greenstein, an astrophysicist, wrote, As we survey all the evidence, the thought insistently arises that some supernatural agency, or rather agency, he makes the capital A, must be involved. Is it possible that suddenly, without intending to, we have stumbled upon scientific proof for the existence of a supreme being? Was it God who stepped in and so providentially crafted the cosmos for our benefit? Now let's zoom back down into our planet. What are the factors necessary for a habitable planet? So there's the so-called uh, mediocrity principle the Copernican principle, the idea that we're just one planet on one mediocre star in one solar system, in one galaxy. How many galaxies do you think there are in the universe? A lot. There are a lot. 
There are 100 billion galaxies in the universe. There are 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. So it would seem that with the, those huge numbers, there's got to be some other planets with intelligent life, right? Well, there could be, okay? Um, it's probably kind of arrogant for us to think that we're the only folks around that God created. We know that there are angelic beings. We know that God lives in a, in a, a set of dimensions beyond ours. If you want to talk about the multiverse, there's at least another universe that uh, is surrounding or uh, is superimposed over or is somehow uh, accessible from their side to our side to ours. But let's just look at just the natural factors necessary for a habitable planet supporting complex life. Now, there are 20 of these, and there are 15 on this slide. There's got to be liquid water. There's got to be carbon. It's got to be within a galactic habitable zone. That means it's got to be in a part of our galaxy where life can exist. If you're too close to the center, because galaxies are like solar systems, right? They spin. And in the center, you have this massive amount of radiation that would prohibit any sort of life. So there's a galactic habitable zone. It's a narrow band of space where a habitable planet can exist. Uh, a circumstellar habitable zone, that means the, the correct distance from the sun. So you've got uh, uh, the, uh, who's the guy that's the owner of Tesla? Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Thank you very much. I don't know why I forgot his name. Elon Musk is saying now that, that you know, he wants to see, what do you say, like a million people or a thousand people, something like that, on Mars uh, by like 2035. I'm like, okay, no, sorry. You know, I don't want to be negative, but that, that's not going to happen. Putting people on the moon would be easier than that. All right. But these are not habitable planets. The, the daylight is, you know, on the daylight side, it's ridiculously hot on the moon. On the, the, the dark side of the moon, it's ridiculously cold. There's no air. You have to be the right distance from the sun in order to have the right temperatures uh, for life to exist. The planet needs to be orbiting a main sequence G2 dwarf star. Wow. So our, our sun is not just a boring average star. It has to be the type of star that our sun is, which is a sequence G2 dwarf star. It needs to be protected. That is that planet that has intelligent life it needs to be protected by gas giant planets. Did you know that Jupiter and Saturn are necessary? for us to have our planet. They're not just out there. See, this is what we don't understand. These things just seem random. This seems like they're there and, you know, oh, well, that's nice to look at, but they're, they're essentials. If they weren't there, life wouldn't, as we know it would not exist or no life would exist at all. The planet needs to have a nearly circular orbit. It needs to have an oxygen rich atmosphere. That seems to make sense. It has to be the correct mass. Okay, so let's just think about that. I said that the moon is one sixth the gravity of Earth. But if you were to go out to Neptune, which is far too distant from the sun to be habitable, but the gravity on Neptune is crushing. You wouldn't be able to walk around on Neptune, right? 
the average 150-pound man would weigh six or 700 pounds. You simply wouldn't be able to move, right? So you have to have the right mass of that planet you live on. It needs to be orbited by a large moon. It's nice that we have the moon, but did you know we have to have the moon? The moon is absolutely essential. It has to have a magnetic field. It has to have plate tectonics. It has to have the ratio of liquid water uh, and continents. So we, th we see all these, the, the oceans out there and we're thinking, wow, and there's just so much water, but we have to have that amount of water in order for life as we know it to exist. It has to be a terrestrial planet. That means it has to have land. It has to have a moderate rate of rotation, right? So let's look at the likelihood that random probability would generate a, such a planet. The probability of every factor randomly coinciding at the same time is 10 to the negative 15th, right? That's one and whatever that number is with 15 zeros, all right? Oh, there it is. Somebody, somebody said it for me. One one thousandth of one one trillionth. Wow. By comparison, there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy. So this is certainly a large number, but the probability is so small that it makes a habitable planet far more unlikely. Now, that still, because of the vastness of the universe, doesn't mean that there aren't other planets. But the idea that there are many perhaps millions, is vanishingly small because of the probability uh, behind a planet like ours even existing. So, are we mediocre? Are we insignificant? The so-called Copernican principle teaches that Earth is an unremarkable planet in a vast universe. Carl Sagan was famous for saying this. A new calculation of exoplanets just might turn the Copernican principle on its head. So there's a... Um, scientist by the name of Zacherson, and his work suggests an alternative to the commonly held assumption that planets similar to Earth must exist based on the sheer number of planets out there, right? Now, let's turn to life. The idea that life came about as a result of sheer chance. Darwin wrote his famous work, The Origin of the Species. But what is the origin of life? So, Molecular biologist Doug Axe worked the numbers on this. He did the probability on this, and he wrote this in a peer-reviewed uh, scientific journal. According to Doug Axe, one in 10 to the, to the 74th is the probability that even a single amino acid mutation could occur randomly to form a new functional protein molecule in the time allotted by the Cambrian explo explosion. What does that mean? Proteins are made up of amino acids. Cells are comprised largely of proteins. Now, it used to be thought, in Darwin's day, it was thought that the cell was a remarkably simple machine. However, more recent study has indicated that cells are remarkably complex. In fact, proteins, proteins are complex. Viruses, like the one we're fighting right now, are somewhat simple, but they're still comprised of multiple proteins, right? In fact, the two vaccines that are currently being used, one by Pfizer and one by Moderna, are both following the same protocol, presumably taking uh, different directions, but they're using what is called messenger RNA. 
So they're actually injecting a bit of RNA code into your body that once it reaches your cells, causes your cell to produce a protein spike similar to the protein spike that is on the outside of the coronavirus. You guys have, uh, you know, every time you see uh, some article on the coronavirus, you see that ball with all the spikes sticking out of it, right? Right. So these protein spikes are what cause this virus to attach to your cell. And then basically it takes over your cell and turns your cell into a machine for reproducing itself. So what these mRNA uh, vaccines do is they tell your cells to create that protein that is on the outside of the coronavirus. Well, your body immediately recognizes that as a foreign body, so it starts creating uh, immunity. And the, your immune system starts attacking that protein and getting rid of it. Now you have an immunity that recognizes the protein on the outside of the coronavirus. So when you encounter the coronavirus, your body recognizes it and gets rid of it. Sounds like a great idea. Although I've seen some feedback on these two vaccines and I don't think that I'm gonna be getting either the Pfizer or the Moderna. Now, Johnson & Johnson, uh, they have a vaccine that may be uh, approved very soon and it's using a, uh, an older methodology wherein they take a, uh, a virus that is uh, less than deadly, they deactivate the virus. It's usually a version of the cold virus. In fact, I read on Johnson & Johnson's site that that's what it is. They've just taken the cold virus and there's, there's not just one cold virus any more than there's one flu virus. Okay, but they've taken a version of the cold virus, deactivated it, mean, meaning they're keeping it from being virulent and causing you to be sick, essentially causing it to reproduce. And they're injecting the, uh, the information from the coronavirus inside that. And then they're injecting that into your body. Your body reads it, your body fights it, your body develops an immunity and it kicks it out. But see, this is all, th this is what you need to understand. Scientists are only trying to get your immune system to do what your immune system is created to do. So this is why once you've had the coronavirus, you don't need to get a vaccine. You already have the immunities. Now, it may end up that the coronavirus becomes endemic which means that we really never effectively get rid of it. It's just like the flu virus. It just keeps mutating and mutating. And just like every year, older people get the flu shot and people that are vulnerable get the flu shot. It is possible that we'll encounter the same thing with the coronavirus and that the, the, they'll just have to adjust the shot um, so that it teaches your immune system to fight off uh, the new version of this. Now, the good news I think is this, um, initially, they didn't know what COVID-19 really was. Now, they, the actual name for it is SARS-CoV-2. It's a SARS virus. It's a respiratory virus. Well, there have already been respiratory viruses within the last decade and decade and a half. People that have previously been exposed to SARS-1 are the ones who are fighting this off most easily. What does that say? What's encouraging about that? What's encouraging about that 
is that means that your body has already learned from a previous type of respiratory virus how to fight this particular virus. The people that are having the most difficulty with it have not been exposed to any respiratory vi virus in the past. They have respiratory issues, they have, uh, they're <coughs> immunocompromised, they're older and so forth, all right? But see, the beauty of all of this is, this is not a matter of chance, and this is not a matter of humans doing anything other than understanding that we have this amazing body that is capable of fighting off all of these sicknesses. So what is the chance then that life came about as the result of sheer chance? Well, according to Doug Axe, the likelihood of a single amino acid which is necessary for a protein. And this is for a very simple protein, all right? So proteins are, they, they fold in on themselves and the, those folds have to be perfect, okay? Now, I'm not a biologist. Somebody that's, that's into biology or uh, somebody who is trained in that area could give you more detail here. But the fact is, an amino acid is a basic building block for a protein. A protein is a basic build, building block for your cell and your cells are the basic building block for your body. The likelihood of even the most simple organism coming about as the result of sheer chance is nonsense, right? One in 10 to the seventh, uh, 74th is such a small number that by comparison, there are only 10 to the 65th atoms in our Milky Way galaxy. Are you thinking with me? The chances are one in 10 to the 74th that one amino acid could randomly mutate and be useful for a protein. And that would be like a uh, galaxy slightly larger than ours, having one atom hidden somewhere in the galaxy and you go and pick that atom correctly the first time. That's the chance. That's, there's no chance, okay? So like right now, um, I, I, I gotta confess, right? So, uh, Mega Millions got way up there recently. It got way up there. Now, normally I don't want to even spend $2 on one of those lottery tickets, but it was like, it got up to like $750 million, three quarters of a billion dollars. I was like, dude, I'll spend $2 for a shot at that. And I'll just pray, Lord, you know how much good I would do with this money. You know what the chances of you winning that lottery are? One in three, one in 330 million. Yeah, so I, like, I think as the, as the Mega Millions went up, I think I bought a ticket every week for about a month, right? Four different tickets. There were weeks I didn't even match one number. Give me a break. I didn't even match one number. And then I finally got a ticket and I matched two numbers and I didn't win any money off of that. I'm like, dude, I matched two numbers. Don't I get like $2 or something? Nope, you don't get any money if you only match two numbers. That's what I'm trying to tell you. These numbers are so ridiculous that it doesn't even make sense to put yourself in a position to consider that, all right? Let's look at something else. Look at the complexity of DNA. DNA is the code containing all of the instructions for building your body and brain. It's three billion characters long is comprised of a four-letter code. By comparison, every computer uses just two, right? This computer that I'm using here, incredibly complex machine, it's binary. Everything on this computer is operating by turning on or off an electronic switch, zeros and ones, on, off. Your DNA is 
far more complex than that because we're talking about four components, right? So the question is, where did this complex code come from? Well, design evinces a designer. Information doesn't come without a mind, right? So uh, Agros and Stansu in their book, The New Story of Science, as quoted in Case for a Creator said, though man is not the physical center of the universe, he appears to be at the center of its purpose. The universe is the way it is so that human beings may have life and so that human beings may study and understand it. Human beings are unique and incredibly significant. The universe is the way it is so that we may discover its creator. Amen? Amen. You are a unique person. Now, I know this sounds like, you know, what your kindergarten teacher told you, what your parents told you, right? We all need to think we're special, but you are. Listen to what Matthew McClure, uh, PhD, professor of biology said. What this all means is that the odds of your parents producing you as opposed to someone else, genetically speaking, are hundreds of trillions to one. So incalculable that it may make the fine-tuning of the universe seem trivial by comparison. Perhaps the best example you will see of a divinely inspired and fine-tuned physical object is to look at yourself in the mirror, for each and every one of us are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. You're not an accident. Even if your parents didn't plan you, even if you don't feel like you matter, you're not an accident. You're here for a reason. You're here for a purpose. God put you here. Let's back up and get some quotes here. Respected astrophysicists admit it. Sir Fred Hoyle, this is the uh, physicist who first quoted, uh, used the term, coined the term Big Bang, uh, and he used it derisively initially. But he said, quote, a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology. Paul Davies, an ASU professor, yay ASU, Arizona State University. I didn't go there, but it's Arizona. And I, that's where I grew up. Uh, he's a professor, uh, a, theore a theoretical physicist, an astrobiologist, a cosmologist. How many titles do you need, Paul? Um, he said, the laws of physics seem themselves to be the product of exceedingly ingenious design. The impression of design is overwhelming. When you have design, you have a designer. Edward Harrison, a cosmologist, said, the fine-tuning of the universe provides prima facie, that means on the face, evidence of deistic design. That means a, a personal deity. Take your choice, blind chance that requires multitudes of universes or design that requires only one. Many scientists, when they admit their views, incline toward the teleological or design argument which is what we've been studying. Alan Sandage, an eminent astronomer wrote, I find it quite improbable that such order came out of chaos. There has to be some organizing principle. God to me is a mystery, but is the explanation for the miracle of existence, why there is something instead of nothing. I love this and I tear up every time I read this and I've been reading this for over a decade. <clears throat> this is Dr. Robert Jastrow and God and the Astronomers. Lest you think 
intellectual arguments don't have any emotional content. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for, for centuries. So, how can you deny it? God exists. He's all-powerful. His intellect is infinite. He is beyond space and time. And this is both necessary and it is also provable. So follow the evidence. Anthony Flew fought to prove atheism for over 50 years. Anthony Flew once debated C.S. Lewis. Anthony Flew was as well known as Richard Dawkins is today. Dawkins is a biologist and an atheist. Anthony Flew was a philosopher and he wrote eminent books. In fact, one of his specialties was the philosophy of science. In the last book that he wrote before he died, Anthony Flew, well, I'll just give you the title of the book. The title of the book by this eminent atheist, There Is a God. Listen to what he says in the conclusion of that book, which I have upstairs. I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. I believe that this universe, this universe's intricate laws manifest what scientists have called the mind of God. I believe that life and reproduction originate in a divine source, capital S. Some claim to have made contact with this mind. I have not yet but who knows what could happen next. Now, I hope he did make contact by the time he died. He didn't become a theist at this point. He became what we would call a deist. The idea is that he believes that there is a God, there has to be a God behind the universe, but he doesn't know how to make contact with that God, right? So I think that we can see God is love. It is no accident that the universe is the way it is. It's here for our benefit. Love acts in the best interest of the beloved. That's C.S. Lewis's definition for love. And you'll hear me say that again in two weeks because it'll be Valentine's Day. And yes, I am gonna talk about love on Valentine's Day. God is love. And just one look at our vast universe reveals that God is an extravagant lover. For God so loved the world. Let's conclude with some scripture. So we've been talking about science. So we've been looking at the natural order, right? So there is natural revelation and there's special revelation. Natural revelation is what you can see by walking out your door and looking up at the sky. Special revelation is what we get through God's word. Hebrews 1-2 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Hebrews 1.3, the very next verse says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This, of course, is talking about Jesus. All things were created through him and for him. That's Colossians 1.16. That's talking about Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Next verse. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, John 1.3. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, John 1, 4. And Jesus said, but I have come to give you a fulfilling life. Now, I know this is just a picture of Jim Caviezel, but still, 
This is Jesus. He is God's representative. He is God's final revelation. He is God's way of showing you what he expects of you and how much he loves you. I think the teleological argument, the design argument, ultimately points to the Lord Jesus. Amen? All right. So I have one more piece of video that I want to uh, show you. And unfortunately, guys, at home, I can't show this piece of video to you. But um, we'll get to a time when you can come to church again, and that'll be exciting. Nonetheless, God bless you. Thank you for coming today or showing up today.